Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley... Even as the national vaccine rollout helps inoculate Americans against the current virus, climate change is already fueling the next wave of global pandemics. And it turns out the pungent smells of many Boston subway systems don't affect air quality, but airborne particles from the train tracks do. Plus, the Biden administration has rejoined the Paris Climate Agreement. How will it make a difference? These stories and more in our Environmental Roundtable. And I feel like I'm reaching a hand to Esther after all these years and saying your story will be told. And these are stories that need to be told. Later in the show, it's official. Edgartown Harbor is now the first and only site on the islands designated as part of the Underground Railroad, the secret network of people and places that helped enslaved people escape to freedom. Edgartown's history as part of the Underground Railroad. But first, joining me remotely, Beth Daly, editor and general manager of The Conversation. Hello, Beth. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be back. Cobble Eames, legislative manager at the Better Future Project, a Massachusetts-based grassroots climate action organization. Hi, Cobble. Hi, Callie. Wonderful to be here. Glad to have you. And Dr. Aaron Bernstein, Interim Director of the Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, a pediatrician at Boston Children's Hospital and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. Hello, Dr. Bernstein. Hello, Kelly. Nice to be here. So I wanted to start uh, just by looking back at this uh, Texas power outage, which some people could just look at and say, okay, so it went out and there's an electric grid and there's some issues, but there's larger concerns here. And then it got a little bit political with regard to clean energy, green energy versus fossil fuel. And everybody knows that Texas is well known for its fossil fuel. So I wanted you all to weigh in and we're really talking about um, a, a crisis of, of climate change. And before you say anything, let me just uh, have you take a listen to Texas Governor Greg Abbott. Here he is blaming wind and solar energy for the storm-induced power outages across the state. Our wind and our solar got shut down, and, and they were uh, collectively more than 10 percent of our power grid. And that thrust Texas into a situation where it was lacking power in a statewide basis uh, that was power that was spread out by that ERCOT organization, organization that you were talking about. As a result, uh, it just shows uh, that fossil fuel is necessary uh, for the state of Texas as well as other states. Okay, so now here he is walking this back. Um, after that, as the power outage continue, people are left in the dark, they're cold, there are 10 deaths, and here he is at a press conference walking back that blame. What, what I made clear uh, was the fact that if we relied solely upon green energy, that would be a challenge. 
Uh, but in Texas, uh, we do not rely solely upon green energy. We have access uh, to all, all sources of energy. All right, Beth, uh, your take. The one thing that, that I think is really important to take away is, is really to look at the makeup of energy in, in Texas. This time of year, only about like 7% or so of the state's overall mix of power generation is from um, um, you know, renewable energy. And you know, the main problem, which we've all have heard about, was frigid temperatures like froze up natural gas pipelines. And that is a fossil fuel. So when the governor says that it's uh, blaming renewable energy and we need fossil fuel, it, it's just, it just feels false. It is false. And the fact is it's natural gas that stopped the production um, that's, that led to the widespread outages and problems. Dr. Bernstein. Two things, Kelly. The, the first is that the first energy source that came back online because the coal did really affect the uh, renewables and fossil fuels uh, were nuclear plants. And this is a major issue in the environmental movement is how much people who really care about climate change should get behind nuclear. But the, the, the reality is climate change makes extreme weather events uh, more likely. Uh, that could include winter storms because climate change doesn't end winter, uh, as well as all the strains we see in California and other places. And we need to be asking ourselves uh, how to build resilient energy systems. And the experience of Texas right now is, is, is it just unbelievably painful. And Kabul. Yeah, so this is, it's, it's, it's really heartbreaking on multiple levels. Um, I was reading about how families were actually burning their belongings to try to stay warm. And so it's really heart-wrenching what these people are going through. And I think even more so when you understand how avoidable it was. Uh, there was a report that came out in 2012 from Climate Central, which is a group of Princeton scientists that was actually given to the North American Electric Reliability Corporation and the federal government that had uh, Texas as second for uh, the most outages and extreme weather patterns to come. So being that this was in 2012 and nothing was done about it, I think, you know, underestimating the severity of storms and the extent of damage is a real issue that is going to be needed to be looked at further nationally because um, you know this could be this could be us if we don't get serious about renewables. We're going to be hearing that about this and the repercussions of what happened there for a long time to come, um, and we should mention at at the time of this taping, uh, ten people. Um, have died. So I think we'll be revisiting this conversation probably in a couple of months. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with Beth Daly of The Conversation, Kabalims of the Better Future Project, and Dr. Aaron Bernstein of Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. It's our environmental roundtable discussion. Let me move on to President Biden, one of the first things that he did, which may leave some people wondering, does it really matter, is he rejoined the Paris Climate Accord. And I'd like to get your responses. Um, If you could pick one thing that you think matters uh, that we join the Paris Climate Accord. Um, Kabbalah, I'll start with you. Why is it important? Um, well, I mean, it's it's incredible because, you know, I was reading about how the U.N. ambassador uh, under the Obama administration before there was a, player, a Paris climate agreement, um, how it all came to be was that there was a staged walkout. Um, a lot of the ambassadors that were calling on 
the, the global community to do something about climate change because their people were starving. And one ambassador said that if America sneezes, people in my country catch a cold. So to now know that we are back in um, and we are back in in a, in a serious manner of we have a president that is meeting with multiple leaders to discuss the crises of today and tomorrow. I think that it's extraordinary and it will lead to a lot of um, trade agreements that are helpful to us. But also it just means that there is hope. Dr. Bernstein. Yeah, I agree with Kabul. I mean, this is a signal that the U.S. will lead on climate and the U.S. must lead on climate. Uh, you see Secretary Kerry, you know, his whole job is to work in the international arena to raise a whole lot of money um, to advance climate solutions and to protect the most vulnerable. And to be at that table, you have to be a part of Paris. Uh, so it's sort of an it's an it's an absolutely necessary step. And frankly, it's a really smart move for U.S. enterprise, uh, the private sector, the mother of all growth opportunities right now. Uh, is in the solution space to climate change. And by being absent from Paris, the U.S. has no seat at the table as the rest of the world figures out how to chart that course. So it's sort of, you know, to not be a part of Paris is suicide. Beth? Yeah, so it's it's great, right? It's, it's symbolic. It's wonderful. It happened right away. But I, I, I'm a, a little bit more cautious because so much has changed. Like, there's a couple of questions that need to be asked looking forward is, how are we going to strengthen our commitments to decarbonizing the economy? It's a really important question. While Trump worked to undermine all this global action on climate change, several states, Washington, California, um, in Massachusetts too, adopted really aggressive targets, um, even more aggressive than what was under the, the, the Paris Agreement in 2015. So what happens next? Will the Biden administration go really far? I think indications are... It might, but I think that's a really, really important question. And I, I think, I think the state's efforts so far have proved that you can you can be aggressive in climate change without losing competitiveness um, economically. And I think that's a really important thing for the world to know. Um, and I agree with with Aaron saying solutions are also it, it's a solution based problem we can tackle right now. And how are we going to do that? Will we invest in adaptation? Will we invest in just solutions based? Um, all these questions are to be answered, but it's a wonderful first step. Well, you know, that reminds me that uh, sometimes we think these things are just symbolic. And when you talk about how some of the states became more aggressive, or maybe assertive is the word to use, uh, Beth, and, and pretty much ignored, really, what the Trump administration was trying to do. I note that there were manufacturers of products that were known to be linked to carbon producing who also had the opportunity under the Trump administration to say, OK, we can stop doing this. And they said, no, I think the world is changing and, and we kind of need to go forward uh, with where we are, even if we would like for it not to be as much as some of the activists would like, but we know we can't go back, which I think says something about people really getting engaged with this as an issue. You know, people who might not have in the past. What do you think, Kabul? I think that there's just so much opportunity when you really take on the climate crisis. I mean, it is any climate plan is ultimately an economic plan because it intersects with so many different issues, whether it's uh, medical or, um, you know, agricultural or what have you, there are so many ways 
that this can we can build back better, which is what Biden um, has said that he is going to do. And he has you know a two trillion dollar plan to do so. And the industries are complying because, you know, they, they see that invested in nature is important. They see that, um, you know, being a, pro- a protector and, and coming out as a business that is a protector of sustainability is important for their bottom line. And, you know, I mean, Biden is just trying to proactively get a hold of this runaway train that is a climate crisis. And the industries and markets are responding because I think in part they don't want to be regulated. So they're trying to also proactively set themselves up to kind of get ahead of it and uh, and take advantage of the market that exists for them. So let me pick up on what you just said there, which is about the impact on medicine, health, all of that, which, you know, people sort of think they know. But I'm interested in thinking about, as you have been, uh, Dr. Bernstein, about um, how climate change is already fueling the next the next wave of global pandemics, which is a little scary since we're clinging on to our hope for the, uh, the stamping out of the current coronavirus, which is, is pretty deadly as it is. I know that you had some conversation with uh, John Oliver on last week tonight, and I just wanted to play a clip. Here he is uh, explaining the link between deforestation, which can lead to the spread of pandemic disease. Over 30% of new and emerging diseases are linked to deforestation and land use change. Take the Amazon. Studies have documented that clearing patches of forest appears to create the ideal habitat along forest edges for the type of mosquito that's the most common transmitter of malaria there. Or take West Africa. The first victim of 2014's Ebola outbreak was a young boy who'd been seen playing near a tree infested with bats before he got sick. He lived in a small village where much of the surrounding forest had been destroyed by foreign mining and timber operations, and evidence suggests that that is what brought the bats into his village. So I don't think that people, Dr. Bernstein, think of that. That's a, Intuitively, that's a link. Sure, it is a link. You know, the first child I cared for who we thought had coronavirus was an experience I'll never forget. You know, I walk into this young girl's room dressed like a Martian. Uh, she's terrified. The mother's pretty concerned. And I managed to somehow <laughs> not make this child jump on the ceiling um, and, and examine examine her. And as I laid hands on her, it occurred to me that I was connecting myself with a bat somewhere in, in China, probably. And and that's the world we're living in. I mean, people are worried about the role of travel and urban density and pandemics. Well, sure, those increase the risk, but, but they're really the, the fuel on the fire. Uh, the fire that is fueling these pandemics are, are, are the transformation of the earth, like the deforestation that, that John Oliver was talking about. We did some work to try and look at, you know, how much it would cost to really deal with what we call primary prevention, getting at the root cause versus how much these diseases are causing us every year. And the bottom line is our salvation comes painfully cheap. Uh, We could spend somewhere on the order of $20 billion uh, and, and make a real inroad in dealing with the spillover of pathogens from animals into people. Uh, and, you know, colleagues of mine at Harvard, David Cutler and Larry Summers, published a, a, a piece in JAMA showing that this one virus is probably costing us $16 trillion. So, you know, it, 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 it concerns me as a, as a pediatrician, as someone who's worked um, in the realm of, of, of these diseases emerging, that we have focused so much on dealing with containment, vaccines, diagnostics, 
figuring out how to design buildings better, all of which we have to do now. But many of those things will only work for this disease. The vaccine, we, we hope, works for this one disease. We're not even sure it's going to do that. Uh, the diagnostic platforms will work for some diseases. But if we invest in, carbon, in climate solutions like preventing trees being chopped down, which is 20% of the problem, we'll get some benefit in infectious disease emergence, we'll benefit the climate. To people living in those communities, there'll be less outbreaks of diarrheal diseases. We've got evidence on that. It'll protect uh, indigenous peoples who have, frankly, in places like the Amazon, been some of the best conservators of these lands to start with. And so we're really trying to shift focus away from reductionistic sort of end of the line containment and really thinking upstream and, and getting much more return for our investment. Beth? I think although it's, it's hidden among the headlines, it, it's exactly what um, Aaron says. I mean, there's such a relationship between wildlife um, and human interaction because of climate and environmental changes to landscapes. It's, it's there, it's clear. Um, the scary part is you don't know where it's going to hit, right? You don't know, you don't know where that kid is playing by a bat tree, or what the next vector will be um, to a, to a pandemic and, and the link to humans. It's fascinating because to spend money to solve it is so much less than it is to, um, you know, contain it. Absolutely, hundred percent. But but it is strikes me it is, it is challenging to figure out exactly how to tackle it on a kind of fail-safe basis. Um, that may never happen, um, but we really need to have a plan for the globe about what's the most likely next jump from animals to humans and work in that area, like, you know, whether it's preventing wet markets or other means to, uh, to stop that link to humans. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me is Beth Daly of The Conversation, Kabbal Eames of The Better Future Project, and Dr. Aaron Bernstein of Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. It's our environmental roundtable discussion. Um, I am fascinated by this uh, subway system study <laughs> because, you know, here in the Northeast, we that's where a lot of us uh would be uh, accessing transportation. I mean, I know it's diminished right now during these uh, off and on COVID lockdowns, but I just want to point out lots of people are still riding subways. This study took place in uh, Philadelphia, in Boston, New York, and New Jersey, and the, the gist of it was that airborne particles from the train tracks and from the friction of those wheels uh, can go into the air and can have some, you know, health impact, some negative health impact. I never would have thought, people, I would have thought the smell, but not, you know, who knows what's in that, but never would have thought that uh, there were other airborne particles due to the train tracks and the train. Um, this is kind of mind-blowing to me, Beth. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a fascinating study. I, I, I think for me, I mean, they, they, they measured in, um, I believe it was government center to... Uh, I think Broadway, if I have that right, I can't remember exactly. Anyway, but but you know, you saw iron. Um, I think a couple other um, heavy metals being thrown up and, and contributing to. to but to me, what struck me as most interesting is the fact is that there's so many other ways that pollution gets to us that mm -hmm. we keep unfolding new ways. Like we think it's like like you said, like you just sort of smell the train, you're like, okay, it's a, you know, it's a, the exhaust or whatnot. But in fact, there's other things happening that are part of this big ecosystem of 
how a train runs in a city and we need to pay, start paying attention to that because I don't know how deeply we understand how that's affecting human health yet. Um, but yeah, the, 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 and it was a fairly small sample size from what I recall. It was only, yeah, it was government-centered Blue Line and Broadway stations and they did a couple other places. Well, that's what I wonder, Kaba, what do you think? Because, that, you know, now, as I said, a lot of people aren't writing, but they will be soon. Oh, yeah. I mean, gosh, I feel overwhelmed by this study. I mean, it's just like death by a thousand cuts. I just feel, um, you know, it's just, it's it's everywhere. It's ambiguous. It's like, oh, my gosh, it's, it's overwhelming. And, um, you know, as someone who used to actually live in New York City, and I remember the first thing that would always hit me when I came back to New York was the smell, and it was the smell of the subway. So, of course, like now my mind goes back to, okay, was that because of the particles that I was smelling? I mean, you know, it's just, it's, a, it's, a, it's overwhelming. It is fascinating, but it really just brings home to me that, you know, the emergencies are just popping up everywhere, like fires. And um, it takes so much toll, you know, the, the toll that it takes on health, right? And how Boston has the eighth highest asthma um, in the country. And then we've got Springfield over here at number one. And, and it's just like, you know, this, all this stuff has really got to be starting to take seriously from a health perspective. Thank you, Dr. Bernstein, for your work, because, um, you know, this has got to be in every form of legislation that comes out that's addressing the climate crisis. We need to be discussing the cost of not doing. What, what, what is that cost? Because everyone loves to discuss how we can't afford this and we can't afford that. But there is a human cost to doing nothing. And we're really seeing it in every corner that we look these days. It's, it's alarming. Dr. Bernstein? So a couple of important points about this. Um, the, the, the levels of air pollution that were, that were found were certainly above any standard that would be acceptable. Um, at the same time, Beth's point about what does this mean for health is a very important question. Uh, the... Air pollution was measured was measured by size. That's how we tend to think about air, these kind of air pollutants, air particles. And we think it's the size that matters more than the composition, although um, there's a fair amount of debate about that. So the, the first point here is air quality overall in the United States, thank you, Clean Air Act, thank you, fuel economy standards, uh, is way better today than it was 20 or 30 years ago. We've reduced the most noxious air pollutants by over you know, 40% while the economy has grown by over 60%. Second, people spend relatively little time in the subway and they spend a lot of time in buildings. Uh, and if COVID has taught us anything, we need to be paying a heck of a lot of attention to buildings where we have really good solutions to dealing with indoor air quality. The third is, like every environmental concern, those who are most vulnerable are most at risk. So who's, you know, we don't really understand the health implications. It can't be good. But the folks who are traveling the longest in the subway tend to be the folks who are lower income, tend to be uh, people of color uh, doing low wage jobs. So, again, the equity lines on this, and that's true of the outdoor air pollution story and the indoor air pollution study. Everyone's air quality has gotten better, but uh, lower income individuals uh, black Americans have actually seen less of an improvement than others. Uh, Low-income people tend to live in rental properties where air quality controls are not within their ability to control. And so to me, this is really about a bigger picture, which is we need to actually focus our concern on the people who will benefit most in our actions to improve environmental quality. We need to put their lives, uh, their children first. 
all of it just says to me, um, our awareness, I believe, just your general person like myself, um, increases as we learn these things, eye-opening as they are, as Kabul has said. And here's another story that, you know, where have I been? I did not know that Norway was ahead of us with electronic vehicles. I mean, if you think about it, it's probably not a surprise because I figure the United States is doing catch-up. But anyway, I learned about it in, from a Super Bowl ad. So there you go. I apologize. Apologies to all of you experts, but that's where I learned about it. Here's Will Ferrell in a Super Bowl commercial this year expressing his surprise that Norway surpasses the U.S. in the sale of electric vehicles. Did you know that Norway sells way more electric cars per capita than the U.S.? Norway. (laughs) So I guess that says it all if you're competitive with Norway. Uh, But meanwhile, this was an ad by General Motors. Again, it's another level of surprise. Um, They're announcing their, you know, intention to go full on to make sure that this uh, that they get to, you know, competitiveness in a positive way with uh, Norway and other countries that are ahead. And of course, Beth, uh, General Motors hasn't always been at the forefront of this. So it's all very interesting. No, it really is. I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, I love the commercial. <laughs> It's very good. It's really good. But it also also shined a light uh, on this competitiveness uh, problem um, that I think a lot of Americans could sort of buy into. But it also spotlighted on, yeah, sure, GM has had their problems in the past. But, you know, what what I'd like to do is talk more about the future. And the fact is, Norway went from like 3% of new cars were EVs. And I think it was only 2012. And it's up to like over 50% now. I mean, and the way they did it was fairly simplistic. Um, you know, they, yes, they put the financial incentives to allow folks to uh, buy cars, but there was this, uh, and they made uh, stations quite accessible to people when they bought EVs, which was really important. But they also had sort of this, I call it the North Face effect, where you had really popular people <laughs> buying EVs and everyone wanted to be like them as well in Norway. And that, that also drove some of the issue. Um, so it's, it's wonderful. I hope it does spark more effort here. I mean, certainly there's movement on the ground. We have Gavin Newsom pledging to get rid of gas um, by vehicles by I think 2035. Um, same with um, other, some companies are also doing the same. So it, it, it's just, it's, it's great. It's really nice to spotlight a comparative point in another country where we could maybe beat it. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, Kabul, GM CEO uh, said they're going to phase out gas and diesel-powered vehicles by 2035, and, and they claim that that's part of their larger strategy to make the company carbon neutral by 2040. Yes, it, it's, it's really exciting to see a lot of businesses kind of take this initiative. Um, but, you know, I, when Dr. Bernstein was speaking, it, it made me really think about the um, the lens of low-income folks. And so, you know, being that they are generally not the ones that are producing, that have, that mm-hmm. have the largest carbon footprint, they're also not um, gaining uh, the ability to not have a large carbon footprint because generally speaking, cars, used cars that you get, you know, I can get, I can go out and get a car for a thousand dollars if I want, but I can't get an EV or, you know, if you live in an apartment building, how are you supposed to charge an EV? Right. So, you know, the fact that this has become like this really interesting topic now, thanks to the Super Bowl and Will Ferrell are basically following the footsteps of Norway that they had, celebrities um, kind of helped with the campaign for this 
to put EVs, make EVs mainstream. I think that we can certainly take some notes from that here in the United States, but we really need to incentivize getting rid of gas clunkers through, you know, maybe an excise tax or what have you that incentivizes it in a way where it's actually affordable because EVs are not affordable for the everyday person. And so I think that GM kicking this off, um, you know, we'll see other car manufacturers follow suit and then suddenly there'll be an abundance of EVs and the the electric sector um, of municipalities and so forth can kind of catch up and provide that energy savings for vehicles, not you know, vehicles and homes, because it's, it's, it's a broad brush stroke that needs to happen if we're going to tackle the climate crisis. And all of these things matter, but they have to be affordable for everyone. And if we were to marry, you know, in the best of all possible worlds, Dr. Bernstein, the equity and uh, the movement toward, you know, a, a positive competitiveness with Norway, then maybe some of our public transportation vehicles would be electric. And so that way there would be a larger expanse of people who would be able to take advantage of the benefits of EVs, even if, as Kabul has, has pointed out, the filtering down to the personal vehicles is going to take a minute. Yeah, there's a general idea that pretty much everything needs to be, or if we can electrify it, it should be. Uh, There's a couple of important notes about Norway, of course. It's not just that they're uh, selling a lot of EVs. 98% of the electricity that is going into those EVs is coming from renewables. Almost all of that's hydro, by the way. So we just did a study looking at transportation in the eastern uh, east coast. So, you know, the Boston, uh, New York corridor. And that's a very heavily trafficked corridor. And, and, you know, if you electrify all those vehicles, it actually reduces a lot of pollution in the communities nearby, but it actually increases use of coal because the electricity right now needed to make that is not available from anything other than coal and some gas. So you can actually make air pollution worse. The other point about Norway is that they are a major oil exporter. 15% of their GDP is from oil, and they are planning on ramping up their oil production. Hmm. So, uh, you know, climate is not a pigeonhole problem. Uh, you, you, when you think about EVs, we, I, I couldn't agree with Kabul more. You know, this, this is, as I mentioned before, the, the, the environmental movement is providing solutions to people who need them the least. We need solutions that matter to the folks who are spending the most on their transportation costs. Uh, and, and if EVs are a path forward, then we need an EV that's affordable by people who are living, you know, you know, it's, you know, somewhere around the federal poverty line. Uh, uh, Norway, you know, can make all the EVs and use hydropower uh, as much as it wants. But if it's exporting, for, you know, 40 percent of its exports and maybe more are, are fossil fuels, that actually doesn't fix our problem. <laughs> so, you know, we, 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 we want solutions for each of these, you know, pigeonhole issues, but we have to think of the climate solutions in an integrated way. And going back, Callie, to this issue about pandemics, that's why we're so focused on these win-wins. All right. Well, we'll have to leave it there. And I thank you all for joining me. Thanks so much, Callie. Thank you. Great to be here. Beth Daly is the editor and general manager of The Conversation U.S., 
Kabalims is the legislative manager at the Better Future Project, a Massachusetts-based grassroots climate action organization. And Dr. Aaron Bernstein is interim director of the Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, a pediatrician at Boston Children's Hospital, and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. Coming up, Esther freed herself. This much is clear. How the Native American woman did it is less clear, but it's her escape in Edgartown Harbor, which is the basis for that town's official designation as a stop on the Underground Railroad. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya. That's Creole for something extra. It's known as the Underground Railroad, the network of people and hidden places which sheltered enslaved people on the run. The places where they were harbored were called stations, and the brave men and women who led them north to freedom were called conductors. And no conductor was more famous than Harriet Tubman. In this scene from the movie Harriet, actress Cynthia Rivo portrays the dangers faced by those escaping to freedom. We cross. I can't swim. Me neither. Robert, care to baby. Isaac, help Miss Lucy. Junior, help Jane. This fool trying to drown us. We got an old woman and a baby with us. Oh, we ain't going in that river. I say we are. Now you be free or die. I ain't leave my wife and my family to drown like no rat. She the only one know the way to freedom land. I want to see freedom land before I die. Conductor Harriet Tubman never lost a passenger. She spent time in New England and Boston specifically, where both a number of well-known abolitionists lived and several underground railroad stations are located. There are 650 sites all over the country, with 12 new listings recently designated by the National Park Service. One of the new stations is right here in Edgartown, Massachusetts, the first and only on Martha's Vineyard. Joining me remotely, Elaine Weintraub, historian and co-founder of the Martha's Vineyard African-American Heritage Trail. Welcome, Elaine. Thank you. Also with me, Lamurchi Frazier, Director of Education at the Museum of African-American History in Boston. Welcome back, Lamurchi. Thank you. Well, this is so exciting, Elaine, and you were the driving force for getting this designation. Um, And it's based on Esther, who was enslaved. So the first thing I want you to do is to tell me who she was and how she freed herself. Well, Esther, as far as we can establish, she was referred to in the deposition given in 1743 that she was an Indian woman. And uh, most of our information comes from a deposition given by uh, first mate Thomas Taylor, who was the first mate on the boat taking her back to enslavement. And he specifically says, we brought her from Boston to carry to North Carolina to her master, which we understood belonged to Thomas Williams of said North Carolina. And apparently on their journey, they put into Edgartown 
And according to the deposition, they tied Esther's hands behind her back and they put a crowbar on her feet and laid down the hatches on the boat. And he says, how she got loose, I know not. But in the morning, she was gone. I discovered this story many years ago in the first edition of my book, back in those days when you had to go searching through the archives of the Vineyard Gazette, literally, physically, taking little pieces of paper and reading them. And so I then went on to read this deposition. And it's a very interesting document because it, it presents more questions than answers. But one thing's clear, Esther escaped and she was not found. And there was an inquiry hmm. into this fact. So she did escape. You wrote about her in your book, Lighting the Trail. I think a lot of people would be surprised to hear that um, she was a Native American woman and that Native Americans were also enslaved, that this was not a one-off situation. This was common. Oh, I feel pretty sure that it was not a one-off situation. But as you say, I think two things about that we kind of commonly hear about the Underground Railroad. One, that only the only fugitives were African-American or people of African ancestry, and all the rescuers were white. And I don't think either of those things is true. So over to you, Lamurchi Frazier. I want you to talk about operationally how the Underground Railroad worked. I mean, I, I gave a little bit in the, in the introduction, but in this case, Edgartown Harbor becomes a stop now because Esther freed herself and, uh, from that location. But there were many stops. How did people who were following the trail, like a Harriet Tubman or others, uh, know where to go and who to trust? Well, I think to, to answer part of your question is to think about the Underground Railroad as not a real railroad, number one and as a connecting uh, body of what is called, quote unquote, safe spaces for people who are self-determined to liberate the, uh, and take the risk, which is enormous, uh, as Esther did, to free themselves from the bonds of slavery and those who were helping them along that way. Mythologically, we think about this North Star as guiding people through the night. But the Underground Railroad activity happens in a number of ways. It happens um, almost by any means of transportation, that on sea, that on land, by wagon, by railroad car, people walking to freedom. There was even an instance of Harriet Tubman leading 75 people in a funeral parade from New Orleans and that area where those were common. And so the ingenuity of people who want to be free and are driven to this use a number of means and those who are assisting them along the way are called that network of the Underground Railroad. I, of course, have always loved the story of Henry Box. I think his last name was Brown. Uh, I'm not sure who whose wife was fair enough to pass, if I'm telling the story right, uh, Swite. And he boxed himself up, literally, in a box and, you know, shipped himself out of out of slavery into uh, an area where he would be considered free. And that's, that's the lens that people would go to. Absolutely. In fact, the person who boxed him up and uh, assisted him with that was uh, put into prison. 
And so it was not without help that he did that. But his arrival was announced before he got there. So he was being expected as a passenger, if you will, in that box being shipped. And that points to another uh, network that was working as a, we know that there were no cell, cell phones and um, fax machines at the time. So the messages carried from mouth to mouth to uh, let someone know that there's a, a, a person coming or the coded kind of uh, messages that were traveling that through this time are amazing uh, to even fathom like that of Henry's story. So when he was arrived in Philadelphia, he was received by people who knew he was coming. So that is another part of the Underground Railroad communication system and network that, that was successful. So back to you, Elaine Weintraub and Esther. She knew she had to escape here, uh, above the Mason-Dixon line. And there, people have heard that expression, and it really is the demarcation between slave and free states, loosely. I mean, that's the best shortcut definition I can give. So she knew if she got taken back to North Carolina, that was it. She was back in enslavement. It was very important that she free herself in, in this moment, in this land, in this part of the country. Yes, I, it, it had to have been very important. And I think it may have been an opportunity, too, because where she escaped, in the harbor at Edgartown, and we're going back to 1743, so this is before the second Fugitive Slave Act that made helping an enslaved person a dangerous crime. Massachusetts was still a slave state itself in 1743. In fact, we weren't even the United States. It was part of uh, the British Empire the colonies. Um, But nevertheless, she made that escape there. And I can't help thinking that the proximity of Chappaquiddick Island, which was a Native American, what the New England word for that was plantation, she would have been, if she could, she took the boat um, from the boat when she escaped, she took the long boat, according to the deposition. And they didn't know where she went, but they couldn't find her. Chappaquiddick would have been very near and it would have been an obvious place to escape for a person of color, for a Native American woman. It would be her best chance, I think. And so I, I think this would, would have played into her decision. And you have to wonder too, because nobody can take crowbars off their feet while the hands are tied behind their back. So that's what I meant when I said there are questions. Who helped her? Did they really do that? Did they say they did that? Because there was an inquiry and it was, they were being held responsible for the crime of of her escape. Yes, because we should mention that what we're talking about, a person and people, but they were considered uh, valuable property and commodities. So this was the lens that people would go to either return them to, quote unquote, the property owners or, you know, protect, quote unquote, the property uh, because it was it was quite valuable. And so, as you say, uh, Elaine, anybody that would just, you know, lose the property would be at risk of, of having some harm come to themselves, particularly if they were ever found to have done it deliberately. Absolutely. Uh, LaMercy, do you want to add something? I do. I think that um, Esther's fierce determination to be free is noted in her uh, escape to Boston. 
and then she's jailed and taken to the ship to be uh, returned to North Carolina to her former enslaver, and she escapes again. So I think her story really attests to the will and determination of people who were enslaved that the narrative treats most of the time in American history as if there was no resistance, certainly up into a, uh, to a particular period in time. Um, and this negates that and adds an expanded story to our, um, our understanding of people and presence uh, who were enslaved and undergoing this, what, we, what I call a uh, shared 500 year history of black and indigenous people, um, especially in Massachusetts, as it was the first colony to adopt slavery legally in 1641, the fact that people were coming to Massachusetts as what have, might have been thought of as a free place, but was not yet, as uh, Elaine has just said. But what we look at this marker, and I really con congratulate the uh, African American Heritage Trail and Elaine for making this so and applying for this, uh, uh, this site to be marked. It helps us to trace these stories that are uh, pertinent to America's public memory and in the landscape that we need to understand more about the stories of those people who help us to mark the walkability of freedom. If it's on a trail, it is something that we can trace. And so as we look at these walkable trails of freedom, Esther's story really helps us to understand the might and the will of people to be free. Um, Elaine, you are the driving force um, about getting this designation. It's quite a long process. And by the way, we're still uncovering because in the group of recent sightings, Edgartown Harbor, where Esther escaped, was one of 12 new sightings. So the information, as Lamerchi is saying, is coming forward, even though it's low these many years after. Agreed. I think that um, it's imperative that we try and find these stories. And I understand what she's saying, that it is the desire for freedom that is such a human instinct. And the sad part of reading so much about the Underground Railroad is that even that is an edited story where it places the fugitives mm. as victims, which they were, but also this huge desire to escape, to, to reach freedom. There is a case in Aquina on Mother's Vineyard where the Wampanoag tribe were instrumental in saving a fugitive from enslavement many years later in 1854. And they quote the fugitive as saying that he, after he had escaped twice, so therefore he'd been returned twice, and that of course would have been the law in 1854, he had resolved that he would rather die than return to enslavement. And I think it's that human spirit that's so important and it should be told. And that's why it was such an absolute pleasure to have Edgartown's history, which has been so limited and so obscured, these stories are real and they should be told to the best of best research we can do. Um, do you think it's especially important now, Elaine, some part of the year 
some people were experiencing a racial reckoning. And I wonder if it's helpful to have stories that go back longer than 10 years or 20 years or, you know, 40 years for people to understand that this has been an ongoing struggle. Yes, I think that is very important. The date on this is 1743. And we are going to dedicate a site down at the waterfront in Edgartown on the Memorial Wharf. We've ordered the plaque and it will tell Esther's story. And I feel like I'm reaching a hand to Esther after all these years and saying, your story will be told. And these are stories that need to be told. We've had a most dreadful experience over the last few years of racial baiting and denial. And it's just been a horrible, horrible time. And I think it's very gratifying that we can say, but wait a minute, look at this. This isn't new. Look back at 1743. Look what happened here. So that people can acknowledge it and say, okay, now we, we understand that literally this has been going on for 400 years. And we need to tell those stories, share those stories. That way we can hopefully reach a better place. Lamarchi, pre-COVID, of course, the museum actually was doing an overnight experience for young people about the Underground Railroad. Share a little bit of what was happening there. Well, uh, I created that program so that there would be an emphasis on what was the Underground Railroad in a place like Beacon Hill. Beacon Hill being one of the most prominent in the north here, Underground Railroad places where people were hidden in homes or people were hidden in alleys and the structure of Beacon Hill as an urban site being instrumental in being able to successfully conduct this Underground Railroad activity. The uh, groups of children and or adults who would stay overnight in the museum were in a site of Underground Railroad activity. We went out to look at other sites and understand their connectivity and the network of people uh, black and white, who were working together to manage either passage further to Canada or help to sustain the lives of people who were coming here in terms of employment, a place to live, because freedom was not free. Mm -hmm. There was fundraising that was done. So this Underground Railroad Network was extremely important as it had its tentacles not only in Boston, but reached to Concord and New Hampshire and Portsmouth and to Maine, where there were other African meeting houses and activity happening. So that was a special overnight in the museum to get acquainted with this history, to walk over the, the steps of the abolitionists and those who were working to right the wrongs, if you will, of what was happening and to gain human and civil rights. Yeah, on that uh, African-American Heritage Trail in Boston, which people can, you know, go on. I don't know how COVID has impacted that, but it's it's really very interesting. Mr. Hayden's uh, story is told, and it's quite memorable, as he's told many of the bounty hunters, and that's what they were. They would come to areas like Boston and look for people like an Esther or anybody else they thought had run away so they could bring back the property to the owners and Mr. Hayden said, you can leave here in peace or you can leave here in pieces, as he pointed his <laughs> gun out the window at some of those bounty hunters. So I never will forget that story from the trail um, because he was he was very determined to protect the people who had made it to Boston. 
And we should say, both of you should say that, you know, Edgartown Harbor, this is very important. And getting this far would at least get people out of the North Carolinas where Esther was escaping from, specifically the Louisianas, where you were talking about uh, Henry Box Brown um, and other of the, the Deep South states. But there came a point when the fugitive slave law was instituted, which is why these bounty hunters were able to come into places like Boston and gather up property and take them back, that people had to go to Canada. So in the end, uh, Harriet Tubman ended up pushing on to Canada because that was the only place where you could be guaranteed um, to be free of the grip of, of slavery. So Elaine, Edgartown was, was, was a stop, but if she managed to get to Chappaquiddick and Hyde, that was great. But if not, she had to push on to Canada. Yes, she did. <laughs> and she may well have done so. They say she took the long boat. One thing's clear that she did escape and that's the that's the golden moment of of this that she did actually escape and her determination to escape because as as it was said she'd been arrested she'd been uh, imprisoned in boston and they had picked her up from there that was like a job pick her up and take her back and she said no and whether it was to chappaquiddick and onward or whether she went towards Aquina and towards New Bedford and headed that way, or whether she just went straight up to Maine and on to Canada, she did escape. Hmm. Lamertia, I'll ask you the same question I asked Elaine, which is, in this moment, why is it important to know these stories about Esther and to know that Edgartown Harbor was a site and to know that there are many other sites here in Boston, Greater Boston, and as you said, New Hampshire and, and beyond? I think that the the country uh, currently is in a a very chasm, if you will, in thinking about racial justice. And uh, on that foundational note of what it's based on, we have called it white supremacy. Um, But in thinking about it further, we might even deepen our understanding of that by calling it white possessive logic or thinking that begins this onslaught of the taking and kidnapping of human beings who are Black and based on color, this operates as an economic-driven device in the Western Hemisphere by the nations of Europe and in America. When we think about the division uh, that was caused by slavery and its institution and the Civil War, we know that that war ended where not all people were satisfied. And this continuous uh, thinking about the divisions of race on the, base, on the basis of color, even up into the 21st century, is a problem. So understanding more about the triumphant history of people overcoming these adverse conditions and in their particular stories, delivering a more universal application of human rights as they press on this Underground Railroad to achieve personal freedom. It is also about a collective. And our understanding more about those stories will broaden our narrative in America that has been so narrow up until this point to actually look at how we might achieve a better understanding of each other. This Underground Railroad activity helps us to see real people in real places who are operating for the Uh, advance and progress of human rights. Mm -hmm. 
Last word from you, Elaine. I understand you have a couple of other sites you hope to put before the uh, National Park Service uh, as maybe official designations. Uh, Yes, I'm working on two at the moment. One is the one I referenced in Aquina, the case of Randall Burton, who did succeed in escaping to Canada in 1854 with the assistance of the Wampanoag tribe. Um, Hopefully we can get that application. I've been working with the tribe on that and with the town of Aquina. I think we can hopefully get that one ready for the next deadline. And I'd very much like to continue the study of the story of John Saunders, who came to Martha's Vineyard in 1790, I believe, and he, his granddaughter gave a deposition that he was hidden in the bottom of a boat that brought him to the vineyard. And he, he did actually become known as a preacher here. So I'm hoping, I'm looking at that, it would be wonderful to actually have true documented mm. stories. There's a lot of mythology on Martha's Vineyard about everybody who has a mansion in Edgartown was on the Underground Railroad, but that's a misreading of history. There was plenty of activity um, in Edgartown involving boats and the trade. I'm, you know, it's there's no documented evidence that just because somebody would like to think their ancestors were benevolent <laughs> okay. ancestors, but they're not, if it, unless it's proven. I think what's interesting about these three stories is the, it shows the complexity of the whole question. It shows the involvement of people of color in the rescues, and it shows the glory and beauty of the human spirit. I think it does, and that's a great place to leave it. I thank both of you for talking about this very important uh, story. I look forward to seeing the plaque in Edgartown Harbor and uh, maybe seeing those other plaques that you're working toward as well, Elaine Weintraub. So thank you both for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Elaine Weintraub is an historian and co-founder of the Martha's Vineyard African-American Heritage Trail. Lamerchi Frazier is the director of education at the Museum of African-American History in Boston. That's it for this week's show. We're on the web at gbh.org, news under the radar with Callie Crossley, and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Hannah Ubley and Wes Martin, and engineered by Dave Goodman. Angela Yang is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.